Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin and this is Seb Stott. Hiya. Today we're looking at mountain bike tech that was way ahead of its time. Yeah, so today we're talking about products which kind of were made a big splash, but then maybe went away a bit but have sort of been vindicated by coming back in one form or another later on. So this is stuff that you might think is pretty revolutionary coming out these days, but actually existed about 20 odd years ago. Yeah, there's no new ideas in the bike industry is a common phrase that we use. So we're basically going to go through some examples of that. I mean, we've got a, a bike which doesn't look like a normal bike, some funny linkages. We've got super fat tires. We've got a funky drivetrain as well. Um, and bikes with wheels that aren't quite the same size. Oh, and an early precursor to the dropper post too. Yeah, so these are all ideas that are very of the moment right now, but a lot of them have been around for an awful long time. So yeah, so before we crack on though, um, don't forget, do like uh, this video if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, if you're listening to it, then make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, all the usual places. And if you're watching it on YouTube and haven't subscribed yet, do subscribe. We do these every two weeks, uh, usually on YouTube, but we have a podcast every week. So uh, you're missing out if you haven't subscribed. Right. So the first one that we're going to talk about is a bike. So you've, you've done a lot of work with linkage forks and linkage bikes, which look pretty kooky. Yeah. So one of the bikes I've run recently was the Structure Cycle Works SCW1. Mm-hmm. We did a video on that, uh, a review. Um, Crazy looking bike, really radical, very innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, and from riding it, I'd say definitely has some advantages in terms of this sensitivity of that linkage front suspension. Uh, so basically the idea behind a bike like this is you take uh, an approach to the front suspension that's somewhat similar to the rear suspensions. You mm-hmm. have like uh, linkages and, and uh, members which rotate on bearings instead of slide with a telescopic fork like... 99.9% of full suspension bikes have. Um, but, um, and that's not the only bike that's been released recently 
to have this this um, approach. We've also seen forks from um, Motion France and Structure Cycle Works, uh, which are modular, so you can bolt them into any bike. But they they also use a, a linkage design instead mm -hmm. of a telescoping design. So this this idea of linkage forks is very de rigueur at the moment, perhaps because we're kind of reaching the limits of uh, performance with telescopic forks. There's, they're kind of plateauing, I think, mm. or just starting to plateau in terms of performance, <laughs> because basically the friction of that's sort of inherent with a telescopic fork, particularly when there's kind of torsional forces on that fork, is very kind of limiting to the performance in certain situations. Um, so yeah, the idea is that linkage forks can overcome a lot of those problems, but so it's not a new idea. No. So back in, it's got a pretty cool story about it, but you, if you've heard of it, well, you've probably heard of White, mm -hmm. um, who are uh, a UK based, but you know, internationally known, pretty uh, up to date, you know, they have some pretty sort yeah. of interesting bikes, um, really good performers. They're very up to date with their geometry. But back in the late 90s, they had a bike called the PRST-1, uh, which was, um, well, it had a fairly regular back end for a, a bike of that era. And it had one of these rather funky looking uh, linkage forks at the front, which was driven by a coil sort of rear shock, which was mounted towards the front of the bike and a funny linkage. So the story Not really a rear shock, is it? Wait, I mean, it's at that point a front shock. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I mean, the, the, so the, there's an interesting story behind it. Apparently, uh, the two guys behind White, uh, whose names are well, there's John White and Adrian Ward. So they, apparently, they were stuck um, in Taipei Airport thanks to a typhoon on the way back from visiting, I guess, one of their manufacturers for for white bikes. Yeah, and they were chatting about the inherent issues with telescoping forks that obviously we're still talking about to this day. Yeah. And they decided that they would each have, you know, in this period of time while they're waiting for a delayed fight, to come up with a solution uh, to the problem. And their solution was this rather unique looking, rather unique looking bike, which I'm sure if you're watching on YouTube is flashing up on your screen right now. Yeah, if you're listening to this on the podcast, we recommend you Google it because you'll understand what we're talking about straight away. But yeah. Probably not if you're driving. But, yeah, no, you know, no, no. once you've arrived at your destination, <laughs> uh, give it a Google because it's yeah, it's very interesting design and uh, somewhat reminiscent, but actually quite different to a lot of the linkage designs that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty wild looking thing. I I, I think um, oh, so apparently they sold two thousand eight hundred of them. I have seen one or two on the trails. Yeah, I've seen a few as well. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, White are very much a UK sort of focused uh, company. So um, if you're in the US, you may not have seen them. So much but um yeah so they did it did eventually sort of die out um in the early 2000s um and i think from an aesthetic point of view that's no bad thing um but <laughs> and i'd say the same with current um linkage bikes because yeah i mean the looks ha they haven't solved the aesthetics problem with any of these uh any of these linkage forks mm. maybe the trust one is the most normal looking but even that is a sleek package for something that looks a bit funny isn't it yeah. Um, so very quickly though, the um, benefit of it, one of the benefits they said was this whole anti-dive thing, and mm -hmm. that um, links into another product that was quite interesting. Was USE did the sub fork, I think it was called, which was an upside down single sided telescopic fork with like a funny bracy thing linking sort of the the bottom of the slider to the the top stanchion, I guess you might, or the top outer, I guess. And again, to prevent um, brake dive, and this was oh, okay. something that quite a few sort of companies seem to be playing with back in those early 2000s. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, there we go. And we should say that this is not a des- uh, not an idea that's unique to to mountain bikes. Uh, mm. Most, or at least a lot of BMW motorcycles uh, still use. Uh, I think it's called the telelever suspension design. So they have a linkage fork, which is designed to basically use the torque of the front brakes to hold the suspension up. Mm so that you get less dive under braking, so that the geometry is more conserved when you're braking hard, um, so that it steers and, more similarly And the suspension braking. still is active? And- yeah, or at least, well, that will compromise the activeness of the suspension while you're braking, mm. which is kind of the whole point. You want it to be firmer when you're braking so that it doesn't dive as much. But then the suspension isn't compromised by that force when you're not braking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can have basically better sensitivity when you're not braking and better support when you are um, which makes a lot of sense, and a lot of the uh, mountain bike uh, linkage fork designs are trying to to emulate that. Emulate that uh, for the ma- for mountain biking, maybe to a lesser extent, because mm-hmm. you don't want it to stay up. You do probably want your fork to dive a little bit under braking, so you have more traction on the front wheel. Um, so you know, not going quite as far as a as the motorbike style design, but the same sort of idea. That's pretty cool. And uh, one last point on this. So there, we, we often talk about anti-dive, anti-squat, all this sort of stuff. White are claiming that there's 130% anti-dive with this fork. So, Okay, so it, that suggests that it should not only hold the bike up, but even Almost rise, extend, r- right. extend under braking yeah. if, if, um, if, yeah, if that's correct. So yeah. this bike uh, sort of was around in my formative years of mountain biking, nearly 2000. So I've, I've not ridden one. Um, you probably can. I'm pretty sure you can find a review, but on Bike Radar, though. So if you're really interested, have a little Google. Yeah, um, I mean, we it's kind of before our time, so we haven't ridden this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are watching at home and you have ridden one, then let us know what it was like. Yeah, tell us how uh, good it, how bad it was. We've heard from you know colleagues that it was pretty terrifying. I think because the axle path was so rearward, mm. and bikes that in those days were so short, that when when the front suspension did compress. Basically, the front center became much shorter, and so it kind of wanted to pitch you over the front a bit. I th- that's what I'm told. Again, I haven't ridden it, so um, let us know if you know any more than we do. Yeah. All right, next up. So, obviously, DI2, electronic group sets, basically non-cable-operated group sets are uh, a fairly big thing these days in, yeah. in mountain biking and on the road as well. Um, but back in the day, uh, and talking, when are we talking quick little Google here. I can't even see when we were talking here. A long time ago, because the pictures look terrible, we had a thing called Shimano Airlines, which was a an air-driven downhill seven-speed group set for mountain bikes. Yeah, so I guess it may not be immediately obvious what the similarity is to modern electronic drivetrains, but basically it's powered. So instead of the shifting being powered by your thumb, Mm. it's powered by a a, a separate power source, and all you do is press a button, which activates or triggers that power to to shift the derailleur. Obviously using a big bottle of compressed air, uh, which was kind of strapped to the top tube uh, or or wherever, in order to provide the energy to, to shift the gears. It's not the most aesthetic of uh, solutions to a problem that didn't really exist, is it? No. Um, and, yeah, you had quite a large reservoir of compressed air. Where you got that compressed air uh, you, from, I'm you, not sure. You used a track pump to compress your oh, air. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, like, um, like an air shot. 
Yeah, yeah. To what sort of pressure? Uh, I, I couldn't tell you that off the top of my head. Okay, but I mean, most track pumps go up to maybe 200 PSI tops. Yeah. Even if it's, yeah. Like but I mean, it's only shifting a gear across seven sprockets. Yeah. What, what I particularly but, like about airlines is, sorry, I, I interrupted, but no. um, so with ETAP, which is the road wireless electronic group set from SRAM. Yeah. So going back to DI2, sorry. So yeah. DI2 came out, the electronic group sets from Shimano, they did XTI, they've done XT, and the shifter kind of followed a more traditional shifter shape and function of, mm -hmm. of clicky, clicky, up and down. When ETAP came out, they had an upshift on one side and a downshift on the other side, and you did two together to shift front met, but that's irrelevant. But it's basically you press one paddle on one side of your handlebars to go up the set and one side on the other side to go down. Yeah. Airlines, it was a single ring group set, and they had exactly the same. Which I think is pretty cool. So that whole sort of sequential shifting -y, very easy to understand. Oh, so you had a shifter on each, each side. side of the bar. Yeah. And yeah, so your okay. left shifted it up, your right shifted it down, or, or, yeah. or vice versa. I guess that makes it very intuitive. You don't yeah. have to, like, move your thumb. It's, it's yeah. just, yeah. And, and the other thing, you know, one of the other benefits of all these electronic group sets that um, it might sound a little bit inflated. Um, <laughs> very good pun intended, uh, but actually it does kind of make sense in sloppy British winters is that they're very consistent in their shifting, right? So if you press the button, whether yeah. it's freezing cold, there's nothing freezing, there's no mud getting in, it just works. And it's the same with airlines. Okay, yeah. So I guess uh, it worked in cold temperatures and hot yeah, temperatures? Uh, uh, yeah, but there's the, the consistency of feel through the, through the shifter is meant to be pretty much there. And yeah. the other final sort of effective benefit, or at least as Shimano sort of said, was that um, those airlines themselves are very flexible. So certainly back in the day, I don't think it's such a problem now, but ghost shifting has always been a thing with long travel mm. um, for suspension bikes, whereby the movement of the suspension effectively changes the length of the gear cable outer, which causes the rear neck to not feel particularly great under compression. So you get ghost shifting. Okay. And apparently, yeah. and it's the same with rotors, um, hydraulic group set, and the electronic ones is that, problem is is removed completely removed yeah okay yeah i guess that's not such a problem with modern group sets but back in the day mm. it was a solution to that the other thing that was ahead of its time which is really obvious is that it was seven speed mm. which is ubiquitous in downhill now but wasn't until recently yeah i mean 11, 11 speed or 10 speed uh, cassettes for downhill was um was pretty common until recently and, and you really don't need 10 yeah. years for downhill um, so they say that you get about 400 shifts out of each inflation of your pressure tank, which is far less than I would say DI2 in my experience. But yeah, there we far go. less. And, and also it's a much bigger tank of yeah, I mean, air yeah. compared to, you know, the physical space it takes up is much bigger than a, uh, a DI2 or um, SRAM axis battery. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think we're going to see, well, is it hydraulics? No, pneumatic gears pneumatic. come back. Um, but... If we're looking at tech that sort of was around and then disappeared and then kind of came back in some shape or form, Airlines has got to be one of those, I reckon. Yeah, it definitely has some similarities. Right, next one. I can't pronounce the name of this product very well, so I'm going to leave Seb to introduce the next one. Uh, the We're talking about the Nokian Gazalodi tires. Yes, there we go. I, uh, I, I was going to call it Glazolody or something like that, which yeah. is obviously wrong. But. I mean, I'm, my guess is, is, well, I think my guess is better than yours yeah, I, in I, practice. I've added letters. Uh, <laughs> but um, I don't really know any better. Um, basically, the, the reason they're ahead of their time is because they were really big, you know, 2.6 to 3-inch tires. Yeah, they did 3 inches, yeah. And, okay, 3-inch tires hasn't come back. 
But my three inch tires came back for a little bit, <laughs> yeah. and then we kind of realized that maybe they shouldn't have come back. But they kind of three inch uh, tires did. They w- I don't think they were executed very no, well. But they um, have molded the current fashion, if you want to call it that, for like a two six to two eight. Yeah, yeah. But I think without the three, we might not be quite where we're at now. No, I think I think definitely people are moving towards slightly larger volume tires. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't really see any two point two. 2.0 no. on mountain bikes anymore. I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, we've done three different experiments now on tire size and mm-hmm. each time found that bigger tires uh, seem to work better off-road. They seem to roll faster if it's bumpy enough mm. and give you more grip, more comfort. There, I mean, it sounds like a um, marketing spiel, but, you know, there is there is good good evidence behind it from what I can see that to a certain extent, within limits, a bigger tire... Mm. You know, has some pretty considerable advantages. So, um, um, and they were they were ahead of the time. They were setting the uh, well, not setting the trend because it went away. Yeah, but they were, you know, they were relevant. Yeah, I mean, looking at the the latest bike radar review of the Gazalodi, which is the G two point six inch model from two thousand and eight. So we're talking it's ten not that long ago, 10, is it? fifteen years ago, yeah, well, yeah. ten. 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, they were they came in at a, a paltry thirty-three pounds, which is pretty cheap now for a, a top end. Oh, pound sterling. Pound sterling. I thought Sorry. You meant weight. Weight wise, like, that is not that is not very <laughs> no, no, competitive, no. is it? Uh, weight wise, for the twenty-six by two point six, we're looking at one thousand four hundred and thirty-six grams. Okay. Yeah. So pretty to weighty. be fair, some modern twenty-nine er tires, downhill tires. Especially yeah. have you, you, ha- you have an insert in there now quite often. Yeah. It's going to weigh that much. So I reckon they're probably quite a thick old casing on that to get a yeah. small tire like that up to that weight. With a really, um, yeah, with a really stiff casing like that, it's going to roll pretty slowly, isn't it? Yeah. Um, one thing I really enjoyed doing was reading user reviews of these tires on um, another, well, really? on mtbr.com, which is full of user reviews heading all the way to the early 2000s. Um, I'm not going to try and do any Canadian or American accents because I'll sound like an absolute idiot. But uh, this is one of my particular favourites. A strength of this tyre. Tyre is a freaking beast. Floats over rough terrain better than any tyre on the market. More people talk about my front gas tyre than anything else on my pimp bike. I mean, who wouldn't want that tyre on their bike? I mean, I think, um, well, well done for your thanks, performance, by thanks. the way. That was fantastic. But the, the last uh, uh, phrase sums it up, isn't mm. it? it? That it, no, everyone looks at it. That's yeah. what people wanted. People wanted to have, like, super monster tees. Yeah. They wanted, um, you know, massive chain ring, huge, like, uh, leopard print saddle, mm-hmm. and Nokia and Gazzalotti tires, so everyone would be like, whoa, that bike's amazing. The thing is, I think those people who 15 years ago were buying that kind of bike with the Gazzalottis, with mm. the, you know, with the Monsters. The same people who bought fat bikes five years ago. Yeah. They still want to be looked at. Possibly. So there yeah. we go. Um, the weakness, <laughs> by the way, from this user, whose name I'm not going to read out on screen because it's very rude, says, so the, the, the strength is, this tire's a freaking beast. Uh, the weakness, this tire's a freaking beast. Can be a bit clunky. I imagine that's because it was very, very, very heavy. Yeah, I mean, we, he's shown us up with our reviews. Yeah, he? yeah, he's, we're he, quite, we're pretty amateurish. If, uh, if you recognise that review of the Gazalotti, give us a shout because um, we can always do with more product testers. Yeah, <laughs> right. Can have my we... job. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> um, right. Next up, um, pretty cool. I think back in the day because it was interesting and has definitely seen a recurrence. First off, with e-bikes. 
And now yeah. with numerous trail bikes from the likes of Orange, from Intense, from other people, other brands that I can't remember right now, but the mullet bike or bikes with different sized wheels front and back. And there are two notable examples of that from, well, from the early 2000s, really, 2006. Uh, in fact, earlier than 2006. 2003 was when the Specialized Big Hit first came out, I believe. And yeah. that had a 26-inch front wheel and a 24-inch rear wheel. Yeah. And then there's the Trek 69er, which yeah. was a kind of cross-country-ish hardtail. That was pretty cool. That came with a Maverick upside-down fork, um, which looked pretty wild. Okay. And it came single-speed. So super niche, super niche. And that it was a very beautiful niche, isn't it? Block, uh, like bronze metallic colour. If not enough people were looking at your Nokians, you could have that bike <laughs> yeah. and everyone would think you were really cool. <laughs> I, I would have thought they were very <laughs> cool because I was pretty much in love with that bike. Um, but yeah, so the, the big hit um, obviously is very much the opposite end of the scale, um, designed as like a their downhill bike. Um, and yeah, a small rear wheel basically, I guess for two reasons. One, super strong. Yeah, because shorter spokes, um, better triangulation of those spokes, better strength. Yeah, um, and also I'm I'm assuming that probably argued on on the whole handling thing, you know, short back end, being able to whip around corners, that sort of thing. Yeah, quite possibly, especially back in the day when you know wheelbases were shorter. You you didn't want your back end to be too long, otherwise you know your weight would be in the middle of the bike, and you, your your bottom bracket would almost be in the middle of the bike. So um, yeah, short back ends were very popular back in the day not quite so much now mm. um but yeah in those days people wanted to get the back end as short as possible and putting a, sh a smaller wheel in there made sense so wh why are we seeing the return of these things then um well we should also mention lightville who kind yeah. of they kind <clears> of brought the idea back they're probably the first to bring it back in to be fair lightville have all have, they've done it for a long time haven't they yeah so they um, had um you could have 27 and a half I think you had different sizes. So the small bikes would have like 26 rear, 27 and a half front. Yeah. And the bigger bikes would have 27 and a half rear, 29, 29. front. Um, I think foes have also, you know, last time we it's talked been about done multiple bikes, times. We, we got yeah. a lot of, most of yeah. the American listeners quite rightly pointing out that we had missed a few bikes out. So we apologize for that. But yeah, I mean, there's also the penny farthing. If we're going to, if we're going to do an exhaustive a, list, a you classic, start with a the classic of the mullet genre. <laughs> yeah. A real pioneer. I think Martin Mays raced on it. Uh, no, he's much too young. Um, <laughs> but, who else can we say? Steve Pete? Steve is that Pete, too yeah, offensive? Um, a renowned penny farthing racer, actually. Yeah, he yeah. was, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so why, why are we seeing these things again? Um, well, until very recently, um, 29ers were um, uh, something a bit niche, kind of only for taller riders. Um, some brands had um only a few brands had 20 full-on 29er enduro or downhill race bikes mm. um and some shorter riders such as danny hart loic bruni on the downhill uh scene um maybe thought that the 29er um they couldn't get on with it maybe it was um their legs because uh, they're a bit shorter the rear tire was buzzing their bum on a steep descents um and so they they wanted to use the 29 front, but with a smaller wheel so that they had, you know, it, it would fit better uh, underneath them. Um, other riders like Martin Mays uh, was was dominating the first few rounds of the EWS mm -hmm. until he got caught up with a very controversial doping scandal. Um, 
he was uh, he was riding a 27.5 GT uh, Fury, but he had put a 29 fork and front wheel in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that made it much slacker. It made the front end much higher. Mm-hmm. And the, the front end on that bike was really low. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess BB height's up a bit as well. BB height up a bit, seat angle. You know, it will change the geometry a lot. But um, yeah, so he, he seemed to really get on with that and seemed to do, uh, you know, was came out of the gate on the first couple of rounds of the EWS, you know, dominating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, since he's been back from his um, uh, doping ban mm-hmm. um he he's been on a full 29er mm-hmm. fury uh so gt bought, brought out the full 29er more recently and he's been on that since so do you think it's maybe it was a bit in, in the racing side of things maybe it was a bit of a stopgap for basically riders who kind of wanted the benefits of 29 but didn't have an available bike to do 29 in some cases yeah or in some cases it probably is the best solution mm-hmm. because they can't fit over a 29 inch mm. rear wheel but still want the benefits on the front where it doesn't cause them a problem yeah. in terms of fit i guess the other thing we've seen actually with these mullet bikes or bikes with mixed wheel size uh, this started becoming you know and if we sort of skim over the history of lightville and foes and all that sort of thing and, and look mm. at the, sort of the the european side of things i guess or the british side of things they became more prominent with more and more e-bikes where you'd yeah. have a very grippy 2.8 ish or three inch even at times i think rear uh, wheel with a 29 on the front and you know i went on the canyon spectral on launch when they released that it was one of the first mm. um and their argument was that this plus sized effectively rear wheel gave you the traction benefits that the motorized or the the e-bike could really benefit from um mm. so great upper hill you know on loose conditions and the front uh, 29-inch wheel with like a 2.5, inch tire felt more precise, felt more accurate, um, and didn't have that wallowy, twisty sort of uh, relatively compromised structure that those wider tires can have. And, and mm. I think, to be fair, I think that was a fairly fair assessment of how those bikes felt. Yeah, but I think there's something else going on there. That I think that's more to do with tire size than wheel size. Mm. Because with the difference in tire volume... Uh, the difference in overall diameter of the tire was similar-ish, mm-hmm. and the uh, but the diff- probably the main difference because I've ridden uh, one of the Ghost e bikes that has a similar thing, like two point five by twenty nine front, mm-hmm. two point eight twenty seven rear, and uh, yeah, I think the biggest difference you notice is the bit the difference in the tire volume rather than the difference in the tire. So mm-hmm. I think that's more about getting the the sort of paddle wheel style traction on the rear tire for for climbing. But with um, I don't know maybe a more precise feeling front yeah. tire front so yeah uh, so th- there's something else there which is to do with tire volume back yeah. to that again that's a that was a a background of tech talk podcast that we did a few months ago wasn't it tire size yes it was one of the early ones yeah so um, yeah have a search through um, obviously you've all subscribed um, links in the video description if you haven't subscribed. Um, uh, but yeah, we we did a, a tech talk series where we looked at we went pretty in depth on eight different topics of mountain bike tech, um, yourself and I, um, including tire size, suspension setup, springs, that sort of thing. Um, and currently, we are running the road tech talk podcast series as well. So as I said, don't miss out. Do subscribe. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to read reviews of um, the specialized big kit because I'm all out of American accents, but. There's some pretty special things in there if you do a little bit of a search. I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed enjoyed reading them. 
Okay. Oh, there's a. <laughs> Someone rebuilt um, a big hit on there and they've put it on Retro Bike. And that is everything about the early 2000s I absolutely hated. Um, so there we go. Lovely. Right. Moving on to. Well, this could be. Could this be the last thing? I think it is the last thing we're going to talk about. That's all right. So, dropper posts. Does anyone actually ride a bike without a dropper post in 2019? I don't think you can. Actually, I, I actually don't think it's possible. I, I think you would literally explode. Be killed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, um, actually, I, I've got some bikes at the moment which don't have dropper posts, but they do cost 500 pounds, um, and that's excusable. Yeah, cross country bikes as well that we've been riding recently. Yeah. Although but even then, yeah, I mean, if you look at the World Cup cross country scene, there are a lot of races now using drop posts because cross country is getting gnarlier, bikes are getting more capable, and yeah. you might as well. And we went for a cross country ride last week mm-hmm. on XC hardtails with non dropper posts, and it was not the gnarliest cross country track by any stretch of the imagination. But I really missed it. Yeah. I really missed being able to drop my heels and ride with the saddle out of the way. Yeah, I mean. So dropper posts, they've been around for, I mean, they've been around for a little while. If you look at um, the Gravity Dropper was probably one of the first, at least mass marketable ones. Yeah. Um, had an external cable. It had like a little boot over the stanchion. Yeah. Um, it came in 27.2, which obviously was real handy back then. Yeah. Um, fairly agricultural, but from what I understand, very reliable. So yeah. this isn't tech that was ahead of its time. This was early tech. The tech that was ahead of its time was the Joe Breeze Cycles Height Right. Yeah, when was that from? That is from the late 80s, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is old. So if you don't know what the Height Right is, um, obviously, if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll put a picture on the screen. If you're listening to it and you're not driving, Google it, but don't turn off. Paint a picture for us with Um, words, Tom. I shall paint a picture with words. Now, imagine a late 80s steel mountain bike frame so a traditional double diamond frame with a regular uh, seat clamp yeah uh, and then imagine your skinny 27.2 probably steel seat post with a big thick horrible looking saddle on top yeah then imagine uh, a spring that is mounted between the seat post clamp uh, bolt and somewhere on the height of your seat post yeah, um, it, it looks a bit like the spring from a safety pin, like a yeah, coiled up with two, with, two, with two arms. But hopefully a little bit sturdier than a safety pin. Yeah, like a, a really thick, a really, really thick. sturdy safety pin. So the idea of this was, and it was meant to be while you were riding along as well. Like I sort of thought, well, you're not going to get your spanners out to do this or your anchors. But obviously back in the day, they did have quick release seat clamps. Yeah. Um, so the idea would be that you would flip the um, seat clamp um, you, with your weight on the saddle, you'd be able to push the seat post down into the frame and then lock it off. And then if you wanted to raise the saddle again, um, you would uh, take your weight off the saddle, presumably, um, and flip the seat clamp, um, well, not the seat clamp, the, the uh, seat collar. Yeah. And the spring would put your seat post back to exactly the right height because it was obviously bolted in place. Yeah. Genius. Genius, yeah. Did it have, could it, would it keep the saddle straight as it went up and down or could well, it twist? So this was one of the, I'm sure, numerous complaints, if we were to use it in the modern day, would be that no, there wasn't any 
Okay, yeah. so I, you had I, to like straighten it with your with your legs as you rode along. I think as you as you were going up and down, there probably wouldn't be enough structural rigidity in the whole system to keep the saddle straight. But you know, like I've ridden along with a on those the five hundred pound bikes I've been testing, which yeah. have a quick release seat clamp, um, and I have ridden along, flipped that, and used yeah. my weight to drop it. Can't get it up again, but that's fine. Um, I mean, that's a separate issue, Tom. Let's let's not discuss that here. But um, <laughs> a, a mate of ours, Sam. Yeah. Uh, who loves bodging things. Yeah. For a long time, he had a gear cable between his saddle rails and his yeah. um, top of his seat tube, uh, which was just the right length so that he could undo it, raise it up, and then the cable would keep it at the right height, and then he would just clamp it up, which is a bit like this, except obviously this adds the spring element. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's like fairly, fairly genius-y for the late 80s. Yeah, can you call it a dropper post? Mm. It's kind of a dropper post, isn't it? Yeah. It's got the spring. It sets yeah. the height. Yeah, and it's kind of automatic in its raising. And with the modern one, you have to sit on them to lower them. So it's a very much yeah. a precursor for the modern dropper post. Yeah, definitely. I guess... Um, so, yeah, I mean, you'd have to make sure that your frame was in good condition, um, nicely greased. I often found when I was, you know, before droppers came along, that I was always scratching my dropper posts because inevitably there's burrs left in. But yeah, looking aside of all those potential issues... Yeah, I mean, presumably, if you if you got it really dirty and would mm. that would that affect I, the mechanism? Because because Orbea quite recently oh God, in did, about 2015 um, brought out a vaguely similar concept to this, which was yeah. a sort of it was a keyed seat post, a keyed seat post with a conventional seat clamp yeah. where you could set the upper and lower heights yeah. with like a pin, and it was keyed so it wouldn't twist. But then you still had to reach down, operate the quick release, drop yeah. it. And it was okay for like it wasn't. It was okay post. for about five minutes yeah. in the UK until it got dirty, and then it just jammed up and was one of the most terrible things. And I, you know, like, <laughs> I, you know, I like a bit of innovation, but damn, dropper yeah. posts. I don't think it was one of the most terrible things. I mean, of all, of all, you know, if yeah, I mean, okay. Like there's probably worse things. Bubonic plague. Um, yeah, um, but but um. Yeah, it, it suffered with dirt, didn't it? Yeah. And I wonder if this was the same. Yeah, I, I imagine it might have been. Because I, I don't think they were that popular. It wasn't, wasn't like these were ubiquitous mm. until uh, proper dropper posts came along. Do you think they would have been more popular had bikes when this was designed? Actually, in 1984, were better at riding downhill anyway. Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, like um, all these innovations like disc brakes, suspension, tires. Geometry. All, geometry, they're all kind of interlinked. And if you, if you had a bike that was like um, really radical modern geometry, but with all the other technology from the 80s, it probably wouldn't really make any sense. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe I think that's true of a lot of innovation. Like it needs other innovation in order to make sense. Yeah, more of a, an innovative ecosystem rather than oh, very good phrase. Yeah, uh, individual products. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's probably a fair look at sort of products that are well ahead of their time. Um, yeah. So yeah, we've got funny linkage forks. We've got Shimano's air-driven drivetrain. We've got chunky three-inch tires from Nokia that weighed an absolute ton. Speaking of things that weighed an absolute ton, Specialized Big Hit, the twenty-four-inch wheel and mm. the twenty-six-inch front, and that rather beautiful Trek sixty-nine, um, which I'm still a big fan of, um, and yeah. height right non-dropper dropper post. Yeah. If you can think of any more uh, that we've missed, let us know. There will be some out there. Yeah, I'm sure. So, um, yeah, yeah, let's do it. I mean, don't call us shills because we've forgotten something. Um, We're not on big dropper post money yet. No, unfortunately not. But yeah, 
thanks very much for watching. Um, hope that was all right. Don't forget, like, subscribe, X, Y, Z, you know the score. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, look out for more podcasts next Monday. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.